0: Welcome to the Rising Economy Podcast, produced by South Island Prosperity Partnership. This series features leading thinkers and changemakers giving bold insights about the key concerns of our time. This includes economic development, building a climate resilient economy, housing, healthcare, and more. The following segment is adapted from the third annual Rising Economy Conference, which took place from November 15th to 17th, 2022.
1: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Critical Response, How We Heal Our Healthcare System. Thank you for joining this conversation. This session is part of the third annual Rising Economy Conference, an immersive virtual and in-person event hosted by South Island Prosperity Partnership. This is just one of more than 20 sessions over the last few days designed to build clarity around a more resilient, innovative, sustainable, and equitable Post-COVID world. My name is Carrie Slavens. I'm the director of engagement for South Island Prosperity Partnership, the host of uh, Rising Economy, and uh, as part of our group, we also have Coast, the Center for Ocean Applied Sustainable Technologies, and the Indigenous Prosperity Center. We are an economic alliance uh, based on Southern Vancouver Island. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce your moderator. Bruce Williams, CEO of the Greater Victoria Chamber of Commerce, is one of Vancouver Island's most recognizable faces. As a former public figure and former broadcaster, he is known for his integrity, altruism, and unique ability to create successful partnerships and collaborations. Bruce is well known for his communication skills, his in-depth knowledge of economic development, and his strong connection to leaders and decision makers. Those have made him a very effective engagement and development strategist for business, nonprofits, and the First Nations. Uh, he's also chaired nonprofit boards and spearheaded several fundraising campaigns. So welcome, Bruce, over to you.
2: Thanks, Carrie. Great to be here. My pleasure. I would like to begin by acknowledging that I live and work in the unceded ancestral territory of the Lekwungen-speaking nations, known as the Songhees and the Esquimalt. It is a privilege and an honor to live and work alongside them every single day. So I'll tell you a little bit about how this is going to work today. Uh, it's pretty casual. This is a this is a conversation, really. I'll turn things over to the speakers in a moment, but a little overview of our format, first of all. About halfway through this conversation, around... 3.30, uh, 3.25, we're going to move uh, away from the speakers into questions and answers from you that you can then direct toward the speakers. You can submit a question anytime through the Zoom q and which is below this video. I think we've all got a pretty good handle on how Zoom works these days. Uh, the session, by the way, is being recorded. So if you want to, you can submit your question anonymously if you prefer. We, of course, ask that your questions be direct and succinct and respectful in every way to interact with the attendees you can use the zoom or the hooba chat as well the production team will monitor the hooba chat q a uh, through chat as well and join as people join rather all the way through uh this whole thing so if you're doing anything on social media uh, any takeaways to social media of any kind the hashtag for this is rising economy 2022 again that's hashtag rising economy 2022 and at this point i would like to introduce our three panelist experts first of all dr miles druckman who is the global vp for sos international Uh, dr druckman is one of the world's foremost experts in global health security and crisis management as senior vice president and global medical director at international sos he leads the development and management of innovative solutions that protect people and their institutions from global health threats dr druckman is the co-chair of the nonprofit International Corporate Health Leadership Council and an alumnus of the World Economic Forum's Global Leaders of Tomorrow Network. And he joins us now from Santa Monica, California. Doctor, thank you for being here.
0: Great to be here.
2: Also joining us is Corey Barkley, a partner at BC Public Sector Leader for PWC. Corey recently joined PWC Canada as a partner and leads the BC Public Sector Practice. Prior to that, Corey was the ADM, Health Sector Information Management and Information Technology division, bringing her collaborative leadership style and passion for transformation and innovation to co-create and advance the Provincial Digital Health Strategy. She's proud to have worked with the province of BC during the pandemic, particularly as the Ministry of Health executive lead for enabling COVID-19 digital solutions, including the BC Vaccine Program. She joins us from Victoria. Corey, welcome and thank you. Thank you.
3: Good afternoon. folks. nice to
2: be here. Also with us today is Dr. David Harrison. He is the physician lead, and a physician lead rather, for the Victoria Primary Care Network. He is a graduate of the University of British Columbia Medical School. He trained in family medicine at the University of British Columbia's Victoria site. Dr. Harrison's practice specializes in family medicine without obstetrics. Dr. Harrison's interests include preventative medicine, sports medicine, mental health and the role of education and technology in medicine. In addition to his medical training, Dr. Harrison holds a bachelor's degree in kinesiology, a master's degree of science in exercise and sport physiology, and a master's degree of science in molecular biology. Dr. Harris was also an educator at the University of Victoria for over a decade before entering the field of medicine. Dr. Harrison, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here, Dave, David Harrison. I'm going to begin with you. You're, you're a family practitioner. You're a guy that operates a clinic that has people coming and going all day long, and that's been the same. Tell me about your day so far today. Just because at this juncture we're yeah. dealing with the flu outbreak, so what are you seeing every
4: day? Yeah. So yeah, today has been a typical day, unfortunately, for the last two weeks. Um, so I I see patients starting at uh, 8:30, 9 o'clock in the morning. Today, you know, before this presentation, I saw 27 patients, uh, in a half day, um, I have a cradle to grave practice. So, um, I've got about you know, 400 children under the age of 10 in my practice. And so I saw about 10 children and walk in walk-in today alone. So I see a lot of flu, uh, and then mostly influenza, a lot of common cold as well, particularly after COVID that was to be expected. But, uh, Monday I saw 41 patients Tuesday, I saw 44 patients. And so it's been uh, exceedingly busy. Um, yeah, these days. So, yeah, See, It's a it's a bit of a different flu season this year, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a much different flu season. I mean, really, uh, you know, the first year of COVID, we did see a lot of you know uh, worry about it and a lot of COVID positives. The second year, it's actually quiet because when people were wearing masks and hand washing, things uh, you know really tapered off. But wow, uh, this year, <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a gangbuster year. Uh, so I, am, I have no no lack of work in my office. Thank you for
2: being there and doing what you're doing. Um, Corey. I, I read your, your biography that describes what you do, but can you frame that out a little bit more for us and tell us about what you do day to day and maybe even what's been going on with you today?
3: Yeah, as you mentioned first in the opening, I, I recently joined PricewaterhouseCoopers PwC and I lead the VC government public sector practice. Um, before joining PwC, I was the Assistant Deputy Minister at the Ministry of Health,
0: so I'm coming today
3: today to share a lot of the experience that I had in the four years that I was with the ministry. The first two were pre-pandemic and how we were, the problems we were working on um, and the solutions that we were uh, shaping up and then how that was accelerated through the COVID and a lot of the lessons that we learned of how we worked together through COVID and some of the experiences, and how can we bring that to our healthcare systems? Now, in my new role in BC and then um, across Canada, and just learning from each other in Canada and even across the globe. I think we're, we're all in the, in the business of trying to solve healthcare for citizens. Yeah.
2: Uh, Thanks, Corey. Um, We're having a little bit of breakup on your audio. I wonder if there's a way that you can adjust your settings or maybe move a bit closer to the microphone. But while you work on that, I'll move along to Dr. Miles Druckmann. Doctor, we read your bio as well. You're a guy that spent a lot of time actually around the world in different places, uh, different continents for that matter, bringing all of that perspective to what you do now. So can you frame out a little bit more about what you do now and even what you've been doing in the last couple of days? Oh, you're on mute, Doctor. Sorry.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. Um, Yes, thanks. Look, what we do is um, maybe broader uh, global um, kind of work that we're involved in. Um, We typically work and support a lot of the organizations that have employees that live and work both in their home country but outside their home country. So it's a lot of global organizations, a lot of Canadian companies as well that have operations overseas, uh, and we're helping them manage. Uh, their the health of their employees, uh, as well as the security of their employees uh, around the world, and so an uh, actual fact, I was just doing a podcast yesterday on the triple demic, which is what we're seeing in the U.S. and I think we're starting to you know see this in Canada too, where we've got a major flu season with the end of hopefully the the end of COVID, but we don't know, and then we have um, RSV as well, adding to them to the mix too. So so we're very much involved with all the global health issues, whether it's uh, kind of what's happening at home versus what's happening in Uganda with uh, Ebola, uh, other health threats around the world too, and how those ultimately affect the whole, everywhere where we live and work. Remind folks what RSD is as well, please. Yeah, respiratory uh, syncytical virus, it's it's actually a fairly common uh, respiratory disease that we see every year. Um, similarly to the flu, the last couple of years, we've not seen very much of it because we've been you know, sequestered with, the co- with COVID. Uh, we've been masking, you know, we've been distancing. Um, it's hit the news a lot this year because there's been a big spike, uh, but it also affects children dis- disproportionately too. Their immune systems and their airways are also quite uh, immature. And so you see a lot of kids uh, in the ICU and even fatalities. So uh, we're seeing a big spike, uh, even though all of us get RSVP, RSV uh, each year too. About a quarter um, adults get it uh, every year. Um, so we're seeing you know this play in with the influenza and also with COVID. So it's this mix, which is uh, really putting a lot of pressure on the healthcare systems uh, across um, North America as well as across the globe.
2: So you know, in the simplest of terms, which we all access through media or whatever it might be in the colloquial. Language of the day, if you will. What we hear over and over again is that we have a doctor shortage. We have a healthcare crisis. Uh, We have all of these things that we deal with every single day. Dr.
4: Dave Harrison, what's your reaction when you hear that? Um, Yeah, I I would actually agree with that um, in some respects, but it's multifactorial. There's many reasons for it. Um, And, you know, that could be an entire conference on that. And and indeed, there is an entire conference on it, right? So, um, you know, being from Victoria and training Victoria, um, Victoria actually has the largest family medicine residency in the province. I I, I do believe maybe St. Paul's might have a little larger than ours. But uh, there actually are some years here in Victoria and where there are none of the residents who graduate um, here in Victoria that actually take on a family practice. So when we have about 30 residents every year come through the program. So that's quite significant. Um, you know, I've, I've taught residents in my private practice. Uh, and you know, you know, recently, I had two of them that have stayed in Victoria. So that's quite rare. But in many cases, they move back to their home provinces. So a lot of these younger physicians that work here and uh, train here in Victoria, they go back home. Uh, a lot of people traditionally come to Victoria and Vancouver because they want to experience the weather. They're coming from other provinces. Once they finish the residency program, because that's where their family support is, they go back to their own provinces. Right? So so that is, you know, that definitely is an issue. Um, the other and this might be a little bit of political heated one. Um, But uh, for the longest time, um, BC family physicians were one of the lowest remunerated uh, primary care physicians. I think Nova Scotia and perhaps New Brunswick was, um, you know, uh, remunerated less on average than BC physicians. And then you add on the, uh, the high cost of living as well as the high cost of doing business here in this province. So the combination of two made it quite difficult, particularly for new and, and young, expiring, expiring 15. my computer tells me to keep you on time, um, uh, <laughs> new and aspiring, you know, family physicians to, you know, who are coming out of the residency program with enormous amount of debt, sometimes 200, $300,000, and then trying to establish a practice, you know, like what I do in the office, isn't very attractive because you know, a lot of the renew, like a lot of what we do earn gets turned over into overhead staffing costs, which are again much higher than other places in the country. So there's a lot of you know um, headwind for you know, young physicians to start um, a practice. Um, that's even despite lo- all the, the money that government is putting into these urgent care centers because even though you know it, it does help in terms of um, you know gross income, there's still all this overhead that they have to the, their personal sorry, debt that they have to manage as well. right So it's, it's quite challenging. It's a very, very challenging pro- uh, problem, but I have to say that the proposed new compensation, um, you know, by ministry, by the way, so I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, there's a lot of positivity amongst physicians that are currently practicing. Um, there's a lot of buzz amongst the residents and even within the medical schools. So the undergrads are very excited about it. And they're actually even talking about becoming family physicians again. So I am quite hopeful. Um, And I might be biased. I mean, I've been working straight for five and a half years. I have not taken a holiday in five and a half years because I haven't been able to find a locum in that time. Someone to cover my practice. So I am keeping my fingers crossed that uh, I will get some relief very soon. Yeah, you
2: raise a number of points that we're going to loop back on cost of living. Even today, stats came out that said that Victoria is now more expensive than Vancouver. Again, you have to sort of take that into consideration of all the factors involved in that. And graduates, again, as you say very often, don't choose family medicine because they choose to go into a specialty instead, which is a higher pay grade. It's a little lower maintenance in the office and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Corey, I'll come back to you with the same question. You hear it all the time in colloquial language. We have a health care crisis and a doctor shortage. What's your reaction to that? Yes,
3: I mean, it's obviously hard to that, I would say through the pandemic it really magnified our health system and our our difficulty in accessing care and mm-hmm. and so I, I i would say that it's not just a doctor shortage it's a lot bigger than that um, there's a lot of issues with our health system and again they were just so magnified through covid but i would say we've got a, a fairly traditional system and a pathways that patients are expected to follow to get care. And I know we're going to get into more of those details of you know how do we address address those um, how do we address access to care and, and help improve our health system. And I know it sounds like Dr. Harrison and I may have some a good conversation around what the real issues are and how do we address them.
2: <laughs> okay. Thank you. So uh, yeah. Dr. Druckman, let's go back to you. The same thing you you're in the States, you're hearing Similar media, but somewhat different than what we have in Canada. But what are you hearing when people say we have a healthcare crisis and a doctor shortage? I mean, the U.S. system is fundamentally different than ours when, when coverage and things are involved. But what are you hearing and what, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, uh, I will say, you know, speaking to uh, my classmates, uh, my med school classmates from McMaster, uh, you know, uh, and they're where they are today. So they're, they're in their late 50s, you know, early 60s now. And, you know, the story is a bit different, you know, the young doctors versus the older doctors. And, and as you get older, uh, all my colleagues are saying, gosh, I don't want to be on call anymore. I mean, I, I'm continually on call. There's no backup. You know, I'm it. You know, what am I going to do? And so a lot of their, you know, they had made these assumptions that they'd be able to retire, that, uh, you know, they could, t- you know, reduce their... They're uh, on call, you know, um, and how much work they're having to do. And they're realizing that they really can't, if they want to maintain their privileges to do procedures in the hospital, they have to stay, keep call. So they're, they're, there's a bit of a, um, you know, a, uh, a weight, you know, tied to to these doctors, even as they go into, you know, the twilight of their career as to when are they going to retire? How are they going to retire? So I, I see that as, that as a, a continual challenge. And I don't think it's that dissimilar. To what we're seeing here in the U.S., uh, you know, in America, it's it's very disjointed. As you know, the healthcare system, um, th- the focus has been very much more on nurse shortages, particularly in the U.S. We're seeing that um, this concept of travel nurses, you know, going, you know, where the money takes them, because some hospitals are so desperate for nursing care. That they're they're willing to, to to fund you know major you know basic big dollars for for nurses to come and, and fill fill big holes that are uh, in the healthcare system and the same is true you know um, for locums as well and I, I feel really sorry for Dave you know on this is that you know there's if you're a doctor you're getting regular calls from recruiters saying hey we need we need locums to come cover these you know doctors particularly when they're outside some of the major cities. Uh, in some of the smaller communities, they're pretty much a one one-stop shop. So I think it's it's not um, it's not just a Canadian phenomena. Uh, even our colleagues in Europe, you know, are seeing the same kinds of issues, the stresses on on the healthcare system. Um, you know, it's and of course the pandemic magnified that significantly. Uh, the one thing I will say, and I'm sure you know, um, Corey's also going to talk about this too, is that with telehealth um there's also we we have some new avenues potentially to be more efficient potentially uh in managing you know medical care my, my dad is a um a psychiatrist in toronto so he's doing all of his stuff you know remotely you know from teleconference he shut down his office so i think we're we're moving into a new world of of healthcare with telemedicine where we can be more efficient
2: yeah even at the chamber we are are members have access to telehealth through a program that we offer up to them too. So. so, I mean, a lot of this, what you're all talking about was kind of in play before the pandemic came along. We, we had heard talk of all this stuff before now, but once the pandemic came along, was this, pardon the cliche, is this the straw that broke the camel's back? Is this the thing that, that exacerbated all of it and made it, to, and uh, uh, Dr. Druckmann, I'll stick with you on this. Did, is that what happened in the pandemic?
0: well i think it just it just laid bare the the real weaknesses in in the systems right uh you know how all the efficiencies of of rolling out vaccines you know uh and the inefficiencies of it uh, i mean it was amazing i think when we look back in time on what communities did a good job rolling things out versus others that were slow uh, you know, uh, and 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 how we provided care, and how we were able to, um, you know, have surge capacity when when things really hit hard. Uh, all of these, this this real stressor, um, really, you know, kicked the tires on what the real capabilities of the healthcare system is to expand and and you know to to meet demand. And some communities did a much better job than others. Others were really badly overwhelmed. And quite frankly, um, you know, in, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, no matter how good your surge capacity was, you know, it, it was it was knocking the, the doors off of things anyways. So I think it, it definitely uh, highlighted um, a lot of things that people have been talking about for years, but now it was really in the public sphere. And not only that, the community felt it, right? It wasn't just a bunch of, you know, the doctors and nurses kind of complaining about things, you know, it was impacting people's ability to get not just care for COVID, but for their uh, outpatient procedures and everything else, you know, their routine, you know, medical care was out the window. All of us, I mean, it was the last time you got your family doctor check, you know, during the pandemic. I mean, everyone's healthcare was impacted, even though, even if they didn't have COVID. So I think it, it just shined a light on, on, you know, this, this real exposure we still have.
2: I mean, even with elective or corrective or cosmetic surgeries and procedures being deferred, we still have all this pressure on the system. So uh, Corey Barkley, same thing. The pandemic was the straw that broke the camel's back, right?
3: Yeah, agree with everything um, Miles said and recognizing the challenges that we had with the shortage of healthcare professionals across the full care continuum and then asking those individuals to work tirelessly and then adopt a whole bunch of change in their care models so the the pressure on them the the people that they were seeing the fear the anxiety throughout the health system and the folks that were trying to access care so a tremendous amount of stress um onto those healthcare workers which as we've said an already fragmented broken system that just exacerbated all all the problems and and uh,
2: made it worse. Yeah, and Doctor Dave, on a day-to-day basis, this stuff walked through your door every single day
4: when they could. But this kind of boom just dropped right on you, right? Uh, yeah, in some ways, I'm a you know, but I'm also I'm a little bit ahead of the curve in a lot of this as well because I was doing uh, video visits and um, telemedicine before the pandemic. Um, and I wouldn't say to a great amount, but I just actually offered it more as a value add for my patients, right? So for those, those, I mean, again, my practice is a little unusual. I have some patients that live part-time up Island and they live in Victoria the other part of the time, or one, my patient lives in Austria for six months and he lives in Victoria the other time. And so just wanted a way of communicating with my patients. So I started early, uh, but not wholeheartedly. And, and really there wasn't a lot of fee codes to support Um, telemedicine before the pandemic so there really wasn't much interest in it right so I mean it wasn't wasn't valued um, within our culture to do telemedicine at that time and it wasn't I mean for me I actually think there's there's a lot of positives um, through the pandemic you know less all obviously the medical tragedies and everything but I mean it really forced um, the system to adapt um, and actually, move forward in a lot of things that were really sticky and really hard for people to wrap their minds around and get behind, like telemedicine, right? So, um, and thinking about different ways of delivering care and service um, and customer service. And unfortunately, in medicine, there really isn't a big customer service focus, you know, meeting the needs of the patient at where they're at. But I think, you know, that. For During COVID, you had to. You didn't have a choice. You couldn't run business as usual, people in person. So, you know, like people started getting creative in terms of how they can deliver it. So, um, so there was a lot of, a lot of benefits. So, a lot of COVID, what it did, it's actually just kind of pulled a lot of demand from the future into present, and as well accelerated a lot of things as well. But, um, but yeah, it didn't put a. It's really hard turning off a system it was all based on in-person appointments and then all of a sudden try to turn it back on with, uh, you know, telemedicine. So there was a, a lot of learning, um, you know, and a lot of people starting from scratch learning how to do things um, virtually. And there's not really a, and there wasn't really a lot of research around like, well, how do you conduct, uh, you know, like a virtual appointment? Um, how do you, you know, diagnose on a virtual appointment? You know, so there, there's, there, and there still is a little bit of a poverty in that kind of guidance if you really want to embrace it you know so yeah it's quite fascinating there's i think there's a lot of room to learn still um and particularly with technology um yeah so i hope that kind of that ingenuity and that spirit continues because uh, i think there is a lot of good to be had um, although throughout all the negative of the, of the pandemic
2: well all this is not going away this is not going to stop we're going to keep zooming and teledocking and Microsoft Teams, it's it's all going to, it's here to stay. So that's going to start enhancing itself, I'm pretty sure. So when we take a look at these issues and we hear about, uh, you know, there's been hospitals in more remote areas on Vancouver Island where the emergency clinic closed for the weekend because they didn't have anybody to work. Um, the, the workers have left because of retirement or, m- or mental health issues or whatever it might be. Um, ambulance drivers are at a shortage right now because anybody who drove vehicles for a living has shifted out of that sector because it was so unstable through the pandemic. So. Corey, I'm going to go back to you now. What's the answer? What kind of answers do we need to find to fix all of this?
3: Yeah, I think that's a million, million dollar question. And if there was an easy answer and any low hanging fruit that was left, you know, it would have been, it's been picked. So uh, it, there, there's no easy way forward. But I do think, you know, in addition to hiring more practitioners, Um, That's certainly one of the answers, removing the geographical barriers that we put in front of ourselves, um, especially talking about virtual care. um, We we bind ourselves by our communities and our geographies. And I think looking beyond that, and I know they um, recently in the East, they've looked at the licenses and accepting more licensed professionals from other parts of the world. So that's a start. But I, I believe that it's the creating access to care by leveraging all of the healthcare professionals and practitioners within our full communities. So, in addition to virtual care, you think about our traditional pathways and how we access care. And if we are able to leverage our ambulance, our paramedics, our pharmacists, all of those practitioners in our communities and have a way, um, to come together um, and provide that, I, I believe that it would change the, improve the access to care. So we think about just, we call 911, we have an emergency and we get dispatched, an ambulance comes and they bring you to an ER. That's that's a very simplistic example, but a common pathway that we, we have, whereas if, other jurisdictions are looking at how do they do a more accurate job at triage? How do they collect the right amount of data to understand what the what that person's care really needs and what kind of health professional do they need? And so they may need a paramedic and a mental health officer. They may need not to be brought to an ER, but there may be a, a pharmacy, a clinic, and they could be brought there. So I, I think we really need to change the way we look at how our traditional pathways and our access to care and who is available within our communities uh, to provide that care. I know in Alberta they're piloting with Loblaw shoppers a um, pharmacy-led primary care which has extended hours and I I know we all don't get sick between the hours of eight and five and we often need access to care beyond that and and often nine one one or the ER or where we need to go. So I think different models of care, leveraging uh, care workers in our communities is a is one answer uh, to help fix our system.
2: Yeah, we've seen pharmacists given the ability to prescribe certain medications now that you would normally have to go to a doctor. So that's, that's a part of the solution. Yeah. Dr. Dave Harrison, back to you. What's in your solution handbook for these problems that we're looking at? What have you got?
4: Well, I mean, to the, you know, like thinking about capacity um, in communities um, that uh, Sparkley brought up, I mean, one thing which I find as a potential, maybe with some unintended consequences, is national licensing. Um, and so instead of being licensed just in the province of BC, my license can then be used at all the provinces and territories across Canada. Um, cause then we can actually leverage everybody's time and then kind of load balancing, you know, like you, know, you might get some people over in the East coast, you know, might be better suited for doing call like in the mornings. Right. So here in BC or BC. Physicians might be good at doing, you know, like um, like overnight in Newfoundland, right? Just because the time zone differences, for example, but if someone, you know, like people are like a little bit quieter and say in the middle of Saskatchewan or, you know, a little bit higher north of Saskatchewan, the volumes of patients might be lower. They might then be able to take care of people in BC. So you're taking, you know, like the unit volume of time because that's the common denominator, you know, for all physicians, we sell our time for services. Um, And there's only 24 hours in a given day, right? So there's only so much service we can deliver. So let's just make sure that we're maximizing all of our time that we can deliver, right? So let's utilize all the physicians across Canada and balance that across the nation, rather than limiting us to small communities or even my practice, for example, let's extend it to all of Victoria, let's extend it all the way to BC, let's extend it all the way across Canada, right? So, and then with that, I mean, it's great, you know, that we're having out, like, I have a nurse, love my nurse to bits. Um, I have a great working relationship with my pharmacist in my building. But the big thing that we have to be careful of when we start bringing on all these additional allied health professionals is we really need to push towards more common record, or at least our information system should be able to talk to each other. Otherwise, we're just, again, creating more and more silos. And in the information. So one provides. So, you know, so we have different silos. People, you know, delivering different care or having different, different ideas about how to care for that individual. And then it can really you know have some unintended consequences and where a pharmacist is prescribing a medication that i might not know about and that has some unintended consequences in terms of medication interactions so definitely we need like a common technological platform or at least a common you know um you know underpinning language like hl7 or something like that and so all the systems are communicating it's just you know and then we can extend that across the nation too right so yeah, so those are, you know, if you want to do those kind of solutions. Um, yeah, that's great. I mean, there's, I mean, there's other things we can do too, you know, um, you know especially supporting younger physicians, getting into family practice, um, really need, and what we actually lack um, is actually a way of, you know, how to run a business, right, how to run a practice. So really, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be like a, a stunning, you know, a revelationary concept, but when we go through medical school and residency, the focus primarily on these educational institutions is on education, right? And, and there's not a prime, there's not a focus on how do you manage a business. It's not necessarily monetarily, but how do you manage a patient coming into your practice? How do you communicate with that person, right? How do you get them in the office? How do you, like how often do you see that person? Like how do you coordinate the staff? Those basic things. Uh, and a lot of physicians, we actually don't get that education, um, which is very surprising, but that is the actuality um yeah and then again with ally you'll find this surprising too so i mean there's a lot of push towards having nurses in, in our practices but there is no currently for the majority of nurses there is actually no education about community nursing and so we have nurses in practice but no Education on what that is and what their role is and how they can provide support to physicians and uh, and patients. And in fact, when I had my nurse uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, thankfully I have an education background. Was it and taught students and, and residents? We created our own curriculum, but not many physicians or health authorities, for that matter, have have that talent to do that or that knowledge to do that. So that would be you know definitely one a great solution to it. And as well, I I I wonder with you know, pharmacists having the ability to prescribe, well, do they have the ability to diagnose? And do they have the ability to follow up on their diagnosis? And do they have the ability to make sure there isn't any unintended consequences to the prescribing as well? So there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting things out there. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, when you talk about running a medical practice as a, as a business, there are a lot of post-secondaries that teach trades Whatever it might be. But when you take that trade course, you also have to take business courses so that in case you end up owning or running a business, you know what you're doing. Right. So that's absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Corey, you mentioned about immigration too. And something that Chambers of Commerce and certainly South Island Prosperity talk about is the recognition of credentials when those people do arrive in Canada. For one thing, it's not standardized across the country. And secondly, there are sectors, including healthcare, that are not necessarily engaged in quick recognition of the credentials of those people when they arrive in this country or for that matter recognize them before they get here so they can start practicing Uh, but Dr. Miles Druckmann what you've heard these other two say I've got just get some input from you and maybe a bit more of a perspective from around the world too
0: yeah no look I think those are some great ideas and I think thinking outside the box is is really interesting I love the idea of the fall the sun concept so just within our organization we we provide basically a family doctor 24 seven around the world. And so what we do is follow the sun. So uh, so we've reduced the on-call say in the US and then have our people in Europe and Asia manage those cases. So the question is how can you start to build a healthcare system maybe that leverages colleagues in Europe, colleagues in Asia um, to, to better deliver care. So I think that's one interesting idea. The second, which is, um, I know it's co- it's it's counter to a typical Canadian culture, but a lot of uh, companies are now taking healthcare in-house. So particularly uh, in the U.S., but we're seeing Canadian companies too, where they're saying, "Look," um, and I, I you you brought up your point about the drivers not being available, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of business continuity issues and supply chain issues that are impacted by this pandemic. And, um, and, and so companies are, are kind of taking it onto themselves to say, look, I need to help manage the healthcare of my employees. And particularly if you've got a very large base of employees, um, they're providing on-site medical care um, at their campuses. So that's a very common thing to improve access to care, speed of care, keep people working, keep productivity going. Uh, and so I think that's something that it, that has caught on a little bit uh, during the pandemic because a lot of companies now have recruited doctors to provide guidance about what should I do? How do I keep my workplace safe? How do I keep people you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing? How do I manage incidents? How do I contact trace? Uh, a lot of the biggest companies in the world were actually running those things themselves because um, they they felt that the, the public health system was had limitations, right? Um, and so, so I think, you know, there's maybe an opportunity to, you know, lef- leverage some of the best practices uh, when it comes to how organizations are, are supporting their people and broadening that to the community.
2: Okay, I'm going to move to the Q&A that our attendees are submitting right now. Uh, first question, does Canada need more medical schools and research hospitals? And if so, why doesn't the federal or provincial government make these investments? Uh, there seems to be a shortage of doctors, also of medical researchers in Canada, and not a clear route or strategy to immigrating them either, which we just touched on a minute ago. Doctor Dave, do you want to weigh in on that one?
4: I don't know if I'm too qualified to answer this one. Uh, I don't know how many. Uh, I don't. I don't know that the stats or the numbers. I don't know if the other panelists do in terms of. Um, you know how many medical st- schools and how many students are graduated, but uh, you know from my personal experience. I mean, when people go through their undergrad, they they I, this boggles my mind because when I started medical school, I was actually thirty-four years old, right? So I was an older student. But we're you know like uh, you know literally a child because some of them are like twenty-one years old. They they are you know they have to choose their specialty in which they're going to do for the rest of their life, right? Um, and so very few, like, you know, like, well, I would say, you know, like, so they're making this big decision on their interactions uh, in, in the first three years. And majority of them, you know, like they tend to pick specialties, right? So even if you do make more medical schools still doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the right, you know, balance of physician in the system. Because it's self-selection, right? Um, and and it really boils down to how many residency spots there are and of what type. And so that really actually needs some sort of oversight, you know, at a, at a much higher level that knows, like, well, what kind of specials do we need and where do we need them at, in which province do we need them at. Say we're short on, a, you know, an orthopedic surgeons. Well, you're more likely to get orthopedic surgeons to stay in the province and where you have a training program. Right. So you would actually increase the number of spots for orthopedic surgeon in B.C. But if you're short, you know, you know, for example, like family physicians in B.C., you would increase the number here. Right. So there needs to be some that kind of level. So it's not only about building schools and getting people shoved into the classes, but it's kind of, you know, like predicting and then changing residency spots to meet the need of that particular population. But I, don't think that, I don't think that's been done. Well, I don't know. Like I said, I don't have that knowledge. Well, seats in a medical school
2: school have to be paid for because tuition tuition doesn't cover it, right? So that's international students can be a role, play a role in in playing for that stuff. But yeah, it's great to say "Let's, let's train more doctors, but we have to pay for that too. That comes down to the taxpayer. Dr. Miles, you're n- nodding your head. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's where when we talked about immigration and um, the, the quality of health of healthcare training around the world is significantly improved. I think we lose track of, you know, the capability, you know, of doctors coming out of South Africa, for example, within our company. And we recruit doctors from all over the world. Some of the best trained doctors in the world are, are South African. Um, and so, you know, we probably need to think broader about uh you know um trying to encourage you know doctors to come to Canada to practice uh, make it easier for them to you know get through the system obviously from a cost perspective it's a lot for them from a governmental cost perspective it's a lot uh, more cost effective to recruit you know international doctors uh and I think you know the 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 variation between the quality of physicians now has gotten so much closer. That, you know, it's, it's almost like a, uh, you know, a, a very artificial barrier, I think, between, say, a UK, uh, you know, Hong, Hong Kong trained doctor, Canadian doctor, American doctor. And it's, it's still, it, I think it's that whole area it should go by the wayside. I think we need to open things up so that, um, you know, we can get um, care to where it's needed most. Uh, and also the thing that's going to drive it, and and this has come across, you know, of course, with the, with the speakers, is that people are going to go where they can live a good quality of life and and earn what they what they want to earn, right? So, and that's always the driver of, of where people are going to go. So it's got to be uh, enticing for people to do that work, uh, and you can't force them to. So there's all these incentives that I think we need to to prioritize to ensure that we get the best care.
2: There are companies right now that do go out and headhunt doctors to try to bring them back to BC, but they don't even go to a lot of countries because they know they'll never get recognized when they get here. Exactly. Uh, Corey, more more trained doctors, more more happening in medical school, is that the answer?
3: No, I'm partially, but I think if we're expecting to solve our healthcare crisis by building schools, training new doctors, that's years off. And I don't think we can wait that long in order to solve the problem and it's kind of reiterating it it, we need to really rethink that the people citizens are at the center of care um, and that we need to think about their pathways and what they need and I believe one of the solutions is also leveraging our community and other practitioners but also empowering the patients and I know Dave you talked about data and I access to the health information giving people their all their health information many folks are able to manage their own health care they understand their situation and they just need access to specific services and they don't necessarily need to go through a doctor to get those and I think that's what I mean around different pathways of in order to provide care so if you look at the experience of people and um, what types of services they need. We, you know, many of us just need to be preventative, promotion, we might need some women's health care, we might need some maternity care, some screening, uh, very light touch. Those of us that actually that cohort of people could have a different model of care.
2: We touched earlier on telemedicine too, and we have a comment here now, how can we leverage systems and technologies to help in both cost reduction and innovation within healthcare. So other technologies. Uh, Corey, I'll stick with you on that one. What other technologies could we be uh, utilizing more or implementing?
3: Well, I think we first need to actually use virtual health. In, when I was in the ministry and we implemented virtual health, and Dave, you mentioned we added the codes to allow physicians to charge. The majority of calls were on the phone still. And, and it's just, it's not a good experience for patients. So I think that's the first thing is really training physicians, understanding how to deliver virtual care, you know, it, through video channels. And we had a lot of debates before COVID of what could possibly be delivered virtually. And it was getting to down to be a very short list. And there was a lot of debate. But with COVID, that list got heard aside and we had no choice. So I think maximizing virtual health is certainly one thing. Uh, the other one is better use of our data and being able to pull people into the system. So you ha- you're 40, you need this screening. You're you know age 50, now you need this screening. So people aren't trying to get into the system. The system is actually able to trigger and pull them in. Nope, I lost
2: you for a second there.
3: Oh, Am I back now?
2: Oh, there we go, yep,
4: thanks. Okay.
3: The third innovation, and then I'll turn it over to others, is I remember in Quebec, they were looking at increasing the scope of practice for GPs, so that because nurse practitioners and other practitioners were able to handle a lot of the um, caseloads, and they technology is advancing with point-of-care tools that can point-of-care testing for strep, throat, and others, so that allows that to be put aside, but physicians were Um, being given um, handheld devices where they could do x-rays and cardiograms and really do a lot more in their offices. So then you get people coming in to visit a GP when they need to in person. And often those can be given to folks in their homes and they can be doing their own um, x-rays and scanning. So all that to say, getting everybody maximizing their scope of practice um, for when they need
4: it.
2: And right off the top, Dr. Dave Harrison, you were, you were going, yes, yes. About the technology stuff. What's your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, I, I, I am a technophile. Okay. (laughs) I, I, I love technology. Um, like I said, I'm an early adopter. I mean, I've always known, like I've never had a paper chart. I've always had EMR system or electronic medical record system. You know, I, you know, because of my, uh, you know, my research background, I'm, I love analytics I've got in the background of my system, it kind of you know pops up patients who need their screening when and what you know so it informs me so i'm constantly monitoring that system and uh you know when uh mentioned that i think that should personally be the you know like the province's responsibility you know and uh like you know so again let me you're a citizen of BC and you reach the age of 40, congratulations. You you did 40 revolves around the sun. Awesome. Here's your cardiovascular risk assessment popped in the mail. Please go to your nearest life labs. Life labs will even provide you your blood pressure when you're going to life labs or whatever lab you have, if you don't have a general practitioner and, you know, province employs a contracted physician that does your risk, your cardiovascular risk. And you spin, rinse, and repeat for everything that is, you know, recommended, you know, Canadian task force, preventative medicine, or whatever task force you want to use, that should all be provided as a, you know, as a privilege of a citizen of BC, it shouldn't be those kind of things which can be delivered through algorithms, and easily develop, uh, easily delivered, um, should be the responsibility of the province um you know especially in in, you know like when you're in an environment where we just don't have enough resource like human resource it's a human resource issue right so that can all be managed by algorithms it doesn't actually have to be god this is heresy I, i'm sure there's other physicians out there you out right now but it can be done by algorithms it doesn't have to be done by a human being and the human being there is there just for that personal touch and if you know patients want to have a, a you know a greater uh, conversation about it or if they god forbid is a positive result and then that physician is then there to quarterback them through the system so they can get to bc cancer right so they can get the colonoscopies right so they can get the services that they've paid into but they have haven't been able to get the benefit of paying their taxes to get the service, right? And that that would be a very large part of the, the population, uh, which can just then get their reassurance that everything is okay, you know? So, I mean, there is some, you know, some talk that everybody needs a primary care physician, but maybe that's not necessarily true, especially when people are, you know, like they're taking care of themselves and they're exercising regularly, they have a good diet. I mean, what they need is regular ongoing assurance that what they're doing is healthy and right. And then, God forbid, when the finger of God selects that person for you know, like, you know, like cervical cancer, the system is there to capture them, right? That's how you're actually going to save the money on the broader system right? So that, I think for me personally, is the biggest innovation and that way. You know, we can get, have a better sense of what we need in terms of human resources. So um, the other thing too, in terms of the patient side is AI. We don't talk about AI enough. Mm-hmm. And on, on, on my side, I mean, AI is very good at gathering information. I don't think it's at a point right now. It does a great job of interpreting. Um, so you need that fuzzy logic book they're called the human brain. So I think, you know, using AI then to capture patient experience and patient data in terms of symptomatology, I think this would be an excellent way of doing it. Again, time-saving on the clinician part, because you're leveraging the patient's time to go through uh, that algorithm. And so I've always had a dream. I've been able to send a message to a patient, the patient fills an online form that appears in my system, and then the night before I review my chart and I look at everybody's symptoms and what they're coming in for. And it loses that black box feeling where I you know, I dread walking to a room because I don't know if it's going to be 10, 15 questions. I already know what the problem list is. You don't go to your accountant with a box of receipts and sit there and wait for your accountant to do all of his calculations, right? You send it in advance. And then, they, and then when you go and see your accountant, they tell you what the story is, right? So I think those are the two big things in my mind. And Dr. Uh, Druckmann, I'm
2: going to come to you with fold in part of another question that's submitted here. Um, I have a feeling some of this stuff is already happening elsewhere in the world. Can you comment on how Canada sees comparing to, uh, sorry, how you see Canada comparing to other types of systems like Scandinavia? The media picks up that those models are not fully public, but this is a major fear in Canada. What are some of the ways countries are balancing improving healthcare outcomes with accessibility? And then we'll add technology into that.
0: Yeah, I think to 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 that question, uh, what we're seeing in a lot of countries now, as you know, um, every healthcare system in the world, except I think the U.S. and there might be one other Middle Eastern country, it, that is is public, right? Um, but what a lot of com- uh, countries have is they have two streams. They've got a public stream for everybody, and then they have a private stream, um, which is kind of a layer on top. Uh, and each country's kind of done, you know, somewhat of a different thing. Uh, You've heard of the, you know, the UK with the NHS system, and then they have a private system on top of that, Um, and typically the private system is more for, um, you know, uh, more high-touch type care, uh, elective surgeries, you know, those types of things, whereas the emergency, urgent, uh, goes into the public system um, but also um, Australia is another good example so you can you can just add an insurance on top of you know your routine um, social healthcare system and you get a single room instead of a double room you know so there's a higher just you know, um, cultural, uh, high, higher standard of uh, just service than you might get um, in, a, in a public system. So it doesn't change, the same doctors are doing the same things. Um, so you'll see doctors, both in the private and the public um, sphere. I, I mean, we're managing this every day within our organization. So if you get sick overseas, we're, we're, de- we're deciding who's the best physician and also what's the best facility for you based on that clinical situation. And sometimes that's the private sector and sometimes it's the public sector. Um, and so so I think it's um, I don't think Canada should be afraid of that potential system. Um, you know there's advantages to it. if you want to get your MRI and CT scan and you're willing to pay additional insurance, maybe you get it instead of flying down to the US to get it, for example, or waiting six months. So, so, I think there's that piece of it, and then touching on the innovation because I'm involved in that too. It seems like you got three innovators uh, on the line here. Um, the I think the other piece to this too is the great point about service and who are the patients of the future uh, and the young, you know, Generation Z and who and coming up are used to technology. They want to get their care through technology. They would prefer to text with someone than actually probably see them face to face. We're seeing this in our business, so you know we we now have a chat feature on our app, and that's getting more popular than calling in to speak to a doctor. So I think um, so. I think we also need to adapt to to the changing needs of what the community wants, and and I think uh, they, if they can self serve, uh, as as Corey was saying, self serve. Their preventive medicine, their, their routine medical care in the U.S. You're going to see, you know, most vaccinations getting uh, being given in the pharmacies now. So all the major pharmacies they're going into the clinic business big time. No one's getting their flu shot with their family doctor anymore. They're getting shot. I got mine in the pharmacy, but that data goes to my family doctor. So my family doctor actually knows that I got the flu shot. So so I think you're going to see, and that's, I guess, one slight advantage of the U.S. system is that it's driven by, you know, the financials. If it's more efficient to do it this way, you're going to see the business move that way, whereas when in, in the, um, you know, in a socialized system, it's maybe a little slower to move because the drivers, you know, are, are different.
2: You know, I think we're coming out of this with a fairly strong sense of optimism, quite honestly, all the conversations we've had about technology and AI and telehealth and the fact that we kind of, we recognize our challenges and we are seeking solutions for all of these issues within our healthcare system. Status quo is not an option. But we have resources at our disposal. We have to recognize them and analyze them and take advantage of all of that. Thank you all for being here today. Our guests today have been Corey Barkley from Price Coopers, Dr. Miles Druckmann, Global VP of SOS International, and Dr. David Harrison is a family physician practicing in Victoria. Thank you all. Very much for being here today. Thank you also to BC Hydro for sponsoring this very important conversation. Also, the presenting sponsor of Rising Economy Week, RBC, and the catalyst sponsor, Van City, for supporting Rising Economy 2022. So, we encourage you now to, there, there's a whole bunch of them right there, including the chamber. Look at that. Uh, we encourage you to go back to the HOVA program to continue the conversation. Upcoming at four o'clock is powering the future from hydrogen to wave power. Thank you for joining us again for a great session. Enjoy your next one.
3: Thanks for watching.